Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. This morning, I want, I'm going to choose to use some Hebrew. Don't worry, it's not intimidating. It's like three words you can learn. Um, because sometimes when we look at Torah texts, I feel like the English word associated with something already taints our understanding of the verse or the passage or the paragraph, because we have so much baggage associated with certain terminology. Um, so, so I want to stay with some Hebrew terminology. Um, again, it's not to be intimidating. It's just, it's just, I like to get away sometimes from what we've come to associate with some English terminology. The other thing I want to do is I want to set up this morning's study in context. So we're all used to, we all know this story. We've all known this story for a really long time. Um, and the story has been used for millennia to punish Eve and to excuse misogyny uh, and to excuse and empower a dominant relationship between husband and wife uh, based largely on this story. Um, and so first of all, I want us to kind of, if we can, I know it's really hard, but if we can put aside all of our associations with this story and just treat it like we haven't ever seen it before, I know it's hard, but it's so important that we, as you know, those of you who, who study with me, it's so important to, to approach the text on the text's terms and not what we've been told about it, not how it's been interpreted. We'll, we'll get to interpretation, believe me. Um, I don't want to ignore interpretation, but I want to start with the text. And I want to start with no bias and no baggage around um, about what any of it might mean. So I want to put this in context for you as well, because I think that's the other thing that's missing when we talk about this story is what, what goes on in the ancient Near East with this whole... Um, with this whole cosmology, this whole um, creation business, what goes on? And if we, if we do that, then we can understand a lot more about why the things that are in this story are here. For instance, <clears throat> for five, until about 5,000 years ago, everyone understood that the world was created by the great goddess, the creatress, the creatrix, it was a female deity who brought forth the universe. And in the ancient Near East, largely what was considered to have happened after that is that she makes humans, often out of clay. She makes humans out of clay and breathes the breath of life into them. In a lot of these stories, the creatrix creates a male figure, a human, and then has intercourse with that human and that is how humanity begins. So there is a lot of um, mother goddess incest stories as the origin stories. Sometimes the, there's a, a, a god who creates with the goddess, and then there's a fight. Once humanity's created, there's a fight, and somebody's got to die, right? So, so that's, that's the world in which this story emerges. So what we're going to be looking for, as we always do, is what is the Israelite reconstruction of these kinds of stories? Origin stories are always the mother goddess creates, 
sometimes with another God, sometimes not. There's always a relationship between the deity and the human that is created. In many of them, the humans created from clay and, and animated by the deity. In many of these stories, the goddess is represented by, any guesses what the symbol for the mother goddess might be? Oh, the serpent. The serpent is the symbol of the mother goddess of the creatrix and in an Egyptian it, it's so so associated that the serpent becomes the hieroglyph for that word uh, in the Armenian tradition we have Chava appear and Chava is called the mother of all the living in Assyrian scripture we have the creatress who makes male and female human beings, quote, in pairs, she completed them. In Babylonia, right, which is north of Israel, the divine lady of Eden and is one of our figures and uh, how the goddess is called and the goddess of the tree of life. Ah, yeah, Pam goes, whoa, okay. In Sumerian, the serpent god, the original god, is called the lord of the tree of truth. And the female counterpart of that god is the great mother serpent of heaven. Um, we have found icons in the ancient world um, depicting a goddess creating a human being with a serpent coiled around a tree behind them. In Phoenicia, the goddess Astarte is called Eve. And uh, in Assyria, Nin Eve, or Holy Lady Eve, uh, as well. So these, this is the context in which we begin our story. That's really important. So the same way we don't ask, why do we have a flood story? Our question is, what is the Israelite reconstruction of the flood story? What changes in early Israel? You have to have the flood story. Duh, right? So this is not here either, this whole um, seven days of creation and then human beings being created. This is not here to explain the origins of the universe, by the way. This is to create a backdrop for the rest of Torah, you have to start here in the ancient world. You have to start with a conversation about the creation of humanity before you tell the story of humanity. And we, we've just got all of the components that have to be there. We have this tree of life, tree of truth. We have a serpent, some, the goddess. Sometimes the serpent is a symbol right, of some other kind of deity. Um, we have human beings created out of clay, uh, and sometimes, like we said, a relationship between the goddess and the male uh, human who's created. So that's all that some some components of that have to be there for it to be an ancient Near Eastern um, story about the origins of the universe and the origins of humanity and its relationship to divinity. Now, let's see. Obviously, early Israel is not going to have a creatress like we know that. Right. It is a patriarchal tradition that's coming on the scene. So already it's a radical thing that there's no female deity birthing the world. That's bizarre in the ancient world. It's like, what are you talking about? This, this boy God is alone 
And let's see where we get the first reference to creating human beings. So the first reference is in Genesis 1. And I want to do this on purpose because we have two different creation stories. You all know this if you've learned with me at all. Two different creation stories. We're only going to look at the creation of human beings in the two versions. All right. First version, verse 26 of chapter 1. Vayomer Elohim adam So, So God, in sort of a plural Hebrew form, says, let us make Adam. And here we're not going to say Adam. Here we're going to say earthling, right? Adama, earth, Adam, that which comes from the earth, the earthling. So, so Elohim says, let us make the earthling bitsalmenu in our image, kidmutenu, after our likeness. And so, and they will, we, we're not going to discuss this passage. We will do it another year. Um, but they will have dominion is usually how this is translated. But it, it sort of means they're going to be the big shots, right? With all the other uh, things that have been created. And God creates the earthling, Bitsalmo, in his image. Hebrew is, is a gendered language, and the, made, the main gender is, like in so many of our Romance languages, is male, masculine. So you can translate this, created the earthling in his image or in its image, because it is masculine, if we're going to the default, right? So I prefer it, um, because it, 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 I think it's truer to what it means to be created in the image of God, right, is it. Right, it creates the human. In the image of God, did it create it? Male and female, did it create them? All right, that's all we're going to do of chapter one. But this is chapter one of Genesis. Masculine and feminine, male and female, God created them. Okay. Then we go on and we have a second creation story, and it's the one we're all more familiar with. But I didn't want, I do not ever want to teach this with with saying this is the story, right? There are two stories. So the rabbis have to deal with that. The rabbis have to deal with the fact that we have a problem here, right? That they don't exactly match up, but... We're not going to spend too much time on that, although Robin, if we have time, I will get to their explanation, their dealing of it with it, which is, um, of course, Lilith. All right. Okay. Vayikraha Adam. So we're, we're getting, well, I want to, let's go back a little bit. So let's get the creation of Adam in our second narrative. Yudhevavhei. So now we have a different name for God, notice, right? So what does that usually tell us? If we have a new name for God, it usually tells us, oh, right, different source material, right? Different writer, different tradition, north and south. Elohim is north, Yudhe is south. So we have now a southern version of the story. What's the southern version of the story? Those Yankees. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, so the Yudhe Vave formed, uh, sorry, Vayitzah, yeah, formed uh, the... Eta Adam, the earthling, 
עפר מן האדמה, dust from the earth, ויפח באפיו, and its nostrils, נשמת חיים, the self of life. I know a lot of you see נשמה and want to say soul. It, it's not biblically, we, there is no difference between body and soul biblically. That's later, that's rabbinic. So there's something that gets breathed into Adam by Yudhei that is not there before God does that. So we can call it the animating force. We can call it the breath of life. We can, whatever you want to call it, that's what Nishmat Chaim means here. Some kind of animating force that brings this hunk of clay to life. Vayihi ha'adam, here's how we know, vayihi ha'adam l'nefesh chaya. And the being, the earthling, becomes a nefesh, a, a self, chaya, that's alive. Okay? And God planted a garden in Eden in the east and placed there, placed there ha'adam, the earthling, that God had formed. And then we get trees. This is a very different story, isn't it? Then, well, we're used to hearing creation being chapter one, but the creation of human beings being this chapter, chapter two. They pick and choose how to tell the story. Because in this one, the human beings created, and then God makes a garden, and God makes trees, right? Um, and it makes all of these other things when, about these wonderful rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, right? This is the Fertile Crescent. All right, so there's only Adam right now, the earthling. Vaitzav Yudhevafe Elohim al Adam. God makes a commandment on the earthling, Lemor, saying, Mikol Eitz Hagan Achol Tochel. From every tree of the garden, you may eat. And it, this, the, the word for eat gets doubled here in the Hebrew, which lets us know it's an intensive form. Like you shall surely eat. Like it's a good thing. Like eat from every, you know, it's not only you may, but for sure you should eat of every, um, every tree in the garden. And remember the vav in verse 17 can be conjunctive or disjunctive. This is a disjunctive vav. But... But, as my rabbis used to say, but beauty from the tree, hada'at tov vara, which tree? The tree that's the knowledge between good and evil, lo tochal mimenu. You will not eat of it. Ki biyom achacha mimenu motamut. Because for sh- on the day that you do, you will die. And again, the word for death, mavet, you know, mot, is here twice. So you shall surely die. Vayomer Elohim. Now we're getting the combination of two names for God, Yudhevavhei, right, and Elohim. So, and often that's translated as the Lord God, because Yudhevavhei gets translated as Lord, uh, and Elohim gets translated as God. So the Lord God, so, Yud, so Yudhevavhei Elohim, it is not good. It is not okay that the human being is alone. I will make for the human being, and I hate this translation. This is one of the reasons, this is one of the ways that this text has been mangled. 
is a fitting helper. Okay, it's not wrong, technically. Ezer is a helper. But please remember, the psalmist, the psalmist uses this when it says, I will lift up mine eyes from whence to the hills, from whence comes what? My help. God is the helper. So help does not mean assistant. Help means you turn when you are when you are needing something, you turn to an ezer, to someone who can help you, someone stronger, someone who has more of whatever it is you need. And you turn to them in a time of weakness, in a time of sadness, in a time of need, in a time of danger. Ezer is always in a position to give what the asker is lacking. That, that is the translation I would like us to keep in our heads when we think about Chava. Kenegdo, neged in Hebrew means against, over and against. I need to create for the human who is alone, right? A resource to be helping him over and against him, all right? So for the rabbis, if you have zachar nekeva, you have the male and female being, right, that's created in Genesis 1, one way to deal with the apparent um, difference is to say, this is where God takes the female part and makes Finally, their possibility of relationship because now they are neged one another. Uh, they're against, but against doesn't have a negative connotation here, right? They're, they're able to see each other. They're able to relate because they're no longer one being. So that's one way to interpret what's about to happen. They've been zachar v'nekeva. They've been one hermaphroditic unit, earthling. And now God realizes they can't be in relationship. There's, there's only one earthling. All the other animals have a partner. So God needs to fix that. Lo tov. It is not good that the person, the human, is alone. So I need to make an ezer kenegdo. I need to make an ezer for the earthling that is right over and against him, it. All right. And God forms out of the earth all the wild beasts and all the birds of the sky and brought them to the human to see what he would call them and whatever the earthling called each living creature, that would be its name. So the earthling names all of these creatures, but no fitting lo matzah ezer kenegdo, but he did not find an ezer, a, a helper, a help to be over and against him, we could, we could maybe think about it as some, some being to help with his loneliness, right? What's, what's the Ezra? What is the help he needs? He needs help not being lonely, not being alone. So God casts a deep sleep. Tardema is, is a very special word. It's only used for this kind of situation where it's, think about general anesthesia. This is not when you go to sleep at night. Because if you go to sleep at night and God hacks your side open, right? <laughs> this is not that kind of sleep where you would wake up and not be very happy. Tardema is a very deep sleep. God puts the earthing under general anesthesia 
and Baishan, and he goes out, we, we might say unconscious or whatever, and God takes one of the things from his side and then closes up the flesh underneath. Everyone wants to call this a rib because it's one of mitzal otav. But really the word here is from his side, takes like a achat, one from his side. So everyone immediately goes to rib. I don't go there. If we just confront the text with no bias and no previous information, if you have zachar and nekeva, God takes one of them from the side. And right, and then closes up the flesh underneath. So you could have the hermaphrodite being divided here. One is cut away, meets Salota from his sides. He's got two sides, right? One is cut away. Um, even if you want to say rib, okay, whatever. So this could be a whole different creation story, fine. Takes from the side, you know, maybe his rib, fine. And um, closes up the flesh, um, because I don't have a problem either way. I, I, like, the ra- I like the hermaphrodite interpretation because it, it maintains an egalitarian approach to the earthling and to the creation of Chava. But I don't have to, I don't have to stay there to appreciate Chava being created from, she's the only thing created from something alive. Everything else, including Adam, is dirt. Chava, the mother of all life, is the only being created from another living being. I think that makes her incredibly special. She's unique in all of the created world. In all of what God has created, she is unique. There's no birth yet. These animals get created by God. Adam gets created by God. It's not until Chava that we have something that's a being that's coming from another living being. And not only is he alive, he has within him the special stuff that God blew into him. Chava's coming from that. All right. And God fashions that, um, what God took from the earthling, Le'isha, into woman, and brings her, El Ha'adam, brings her to the earthling. And the earthling says, um, this zotapa'am, like this time, etzem ma'atamai, bone of my bone, uvasar mibsari, and flesh from my flesh, lezot yikaret isha, so she is called Isha, woman, because from Ish, from man, was she taken. So her designation as female, as woman, depends on having been separated from Adam and from Ish. Even if you read it, that it's a rib that there's just one earthling and, she, and a rib gets formed into Isha. It doesn't matter in, in this case. She is, she is Isha to his Ish. It's the first time he's called Ish. Ish doesn't really matter until you have Isha. Before this, it's just the earthling. Now we have the word man because we have the word woman. 
So we have something that's not the earthling exactly, or is taken from the earthling, or is half the earthling, right? But is now designated Isha, woman, and that means we need a word for the other one that's left, which is Ish, which is man. And then we get this verse, hence a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife so that they become one flesh. So the idea is that you have to remember the, all of the Genesis narratives about creation are coming and, and much of the rest of the book of Genesis are coming to describe the world as it is. They lived in the same world that we live in. That, that's the story they have to tell is how did it get to be like this? Right? So, they are living at this point in a culture, right, that understands when you marry, right, a, a, a man leaves his father and mother and clings for that same love and care and attention and whatever to his wife so that they once again become one flesh, just like in the beginning of our story. By arumim, And the two of them were naked, the earthling and his isha and his woman velo yit boshashu and i'm going to use the disjunctive of here but they were not embarrassed right they were they were not they they use shame here but i think it's really strong they they, they have no negative attachment to the fact that they're naked all right are we good so far all right, I haven't seen any chats yet, so it means I'm not, I, oh, there's one. It usually means, okay, I haven't touched on anything radical yet. I haven't said anything radical. I haven't touched any buttons yet. Okay. All right. Now we're getting chapter three. And I flew through that stuff because this is where I want to land, and this is where we're going to stay. We're going to stay with this story. So the, we just got told the human beings are arumim, naked. Right in the next verse, what are we told? You could say and. The translation says now. What if you use but? What if it's the disjunctive of again? But, B-U-T, the nachash, the serpent, is more arum, the same word, is more naked than any of the other creatures. But that's not what your, what your translation says, does it? No. What does it say? Shrewd. Because guess what? It's the same word. So you cannot convince me that there is not a relationship between saying the two human beings were a room and they felt no shame about that. And the very next verse says, the snake was the most a room of all the creatures. Because you kind of got to scratch your head and go, wait, what? Like, what does it mean to be the most naked? Right? So how might the, the nachash, and I want to stay with nachash instead of serpent, because we have an idea in our heads about what serpent looks like and what it means. And I'm not saying it's, it's not relative to our text. But in this text, the nachash has arms and legs. Right? So, like, so I don't want to, serpent takes us too far down the story. All right, so Nahash, the Nahash is the most arum, is the most naked. How might that be so? How might the Nahash be the most arum? Richard Rajay, 
Ding, 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 gets the gold star. The serpent constantly sheds its skin, so it is always naked. So, right? It makes perfect sense if you think about it. The, the Nahash is the most naked because its whole skin comes off all the, like all the time, like every spring or whatever, right? So, so seasonally, cyclically, regularly, tamid, the skin of the snake, the whole thing comes off. And that leaves the Nahash pretty arum, I would say. But how does that make sense in our story? They're naked. They feel no shame about it. The snake is the most naked. Does that really tell us anything? <laughs> like, um, okay. So if you don't go with naked, a room also means shrewd. Wily. Think wily coyote. This is the word you would use of wily coyote, except he's kind of pathetic. But so like always, you know, like figuring it out, being really... Um, What's another word for shrewd? Um, smart in a tricky kind of way, right? Smart in a way that can, can manipulate uh, others. Okay. So, um, so the nachash is the most, you fill in the word here, shrewd or nude. It's up to you. So the nachash is the most, Shrewd slash nude of all of the animals, Asher Asa Yudhe Vave Elohim, that Yudhe Vave Lord God made. Vayomer Elha Isha, and the Nachash says to the Isha, the Nachash says to the woman, Af, ain't it so? Ki Amar Elohim Lotochum Mikol Eitz Hagan? Isn't it so that God said, You cannot eat? of any of the fruits of the garden? Okay. So is that what God said? No. All right. And so the, the woman says to the Nachash, we, we can eat of the fruit of the garden. Again, the disjunctive of. But... From the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, Elohim said, y'all cannot eat of it, and you can't touch it, or you'll die. And the Nachash says to the woman, you won't die. God knows that on the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open. This is the word for opening that only applies to eyes, which is a beautiful word in Hebrew. Um, so there's a word in Hebrew for opening that only happens when you're talking about eyes. Okay, we got it. So the, God knows that the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Vihitem ke Elohim. You and you will be like Elohim. You will be like God knowing the difference between tov, good, and ra, evil. And the woman sees that ki tov ha'etz l'machal, and it's the, that the tree is good for eating. And it's beautiful, right, to the eyes, and so pleasant. And she, um, in terms of being the source of, of wisdom, 
And she takes from its fruit, vatochal, and she eats. And she gave also, right, to, and this is a lovely play on words, gam isha with the dagesh in the hay. She gave it to, it sounds like isha. What is isha? Ish is man. What's isha? Woman. It says here, she gave it also la isha. Here it means, though, the possessive. She gave it to her man. Isha, that dagesh means it belongs to her, not feminine isha woman. She gave it to her man, Ima, who was with her, Bayochal, and he ate. And here we go again, beautiful Hebrew, vatipachna eneshnehem, and the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, right? So they sewed together fig leaves and made for themselves uh, hagorot. So kind of, um, what do you call it? Like a loincloth, right? Because they realized that they are naked. Okay, I want to stop here. So Michael, did you unmute? Yes, we did. We were just going to give you another, a, a synonym for a word, but that's Which okay. One? Guileful. Guileful, I love it. Yes, full of guile. That's exactly, that's exactly right. Um, because the snit, the nachash, the nachash tricks her on purpose. Right? That's why we use that word because the, the nachash is not just smart. The nachash is trying to do something here because why would the nachash start with a statement that God did not make unless the serpent's trying to trip her up, which of course we know, right, is what happens. All right, Judith, you bet. Why was the tree of good and evil put there? Was it just a test? Okay, let's hold that question. Lisa's asking, why trick man into eating? Who's the Nachash trying to trick? The woman. Chava. So some commentators want to suggest... To what end? To what end? So some commentators want to suggest that the Nachash wants to be in relationship to Eve. And that dialogue, speaking, speech, is how the Nachash is Arum, and the most Arum, the, you know, the most intelligent, if you will, and wants a relationship with Chava wants a relationship with Eve. And so kind of starts flirting, starts a conversation. What we don't know is what about starting with something that's not true, right? Why start, why should the Nachash start with something that wasn't true? Well, let's go back. What did Chava say to the Nachash? The Nachash starts with, are, are you not allowed, you're not supposed to eat from any of the trees of the garden? And what does the Isha, what does Chava answer? She only answers, one tree. Huh? There's only one tree you can't eat from. So no, it we was. Can eat, we can eat from all the trees of the garden. We can't eat from the one right. in the middle of the garden. Did she name it? No. No. She doesn't name the tree. Does she know what the tree is? We don't know. She says she doesn't name it. 
And um, Richard Rogers saying the snake Satan, oh, here we go, a commentary already, is telling God, if you're not willing to be in relationship with me, you are not going to have a relationship with anyone. Lovely. Beautiful, Richard. Beautiful, Midrash. So if we make this the serpent, the Nahash Satan, which of course is where the tradition eventually goes, this is the, the dark side, right? The anti-God, if you will, um, dr- saying to God, you know, if you're not going to hang out with me, I'm taking away the folks you're hanging with. The, the folks created in your image and in your likeness, guess what? I'm going to ruin it for all y'all. If I can't be part of the party, I'm going to end the party. I'm going to blow up the party. All right. Didn't God forbid eating from the tree before Eve was created? Very good, Bert. So she doesn't name the tree. And then she says, if we we can't eat of it and we can't touch it, because if we do, we will die. die. All right. Is that what God said? We were there. We heard it. Is that what God said? No. No. God said you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge between the difference between good and evil. You can't eat that fruit. And nothing about touching it. Nothing. So, and and then you're going to die. If you eat of it, you're going to die. And she says, and you can't touch it. So she doesn't name the tree. Maybe she doesn't know which tree it is. She wasn't there. Maybe she doesn't know what tree it is. Who tells, who decides we can't touch it or we'll die? Who, where did that come from? Adam must have told her or she adds it. This is where the commentators argue about whether or not Eve is at fault. Some commentators want to suggest Eve is saying we can't eat of it and we can't even touch it or we'll die. And in adding to that, in adding to God's words, in adding anything to what God says, woman becomes responsible for her own downfall. Amy? I don't really buy that one so much. Anim? It's, I keep getting the feeling that this is the beginning of the awareness of mortality. Oh, don't get ahead of me, Anim. Hang in with me. Hang in with me. You're going way ahead of me. All right. So, right. So, so we have so much here. Do you see why this is so amazing? Okay, wait. Yeah. So, so who tells her? Does Adam, Adam is the one who, have to, who tells her what God said? That has to be because we don't have God telling her. So Adam must have told Chava, we can't eat from what? The tree in the middle of the garden? Does Adam tell her what the tree is? We don't know. We don't have that conversation. Does Adam tell her? And we can't touch it or we'll die? If so, in his paternalism, setting a larger fence around the law, because after all, she's just a stupid female, she might really mess up without meaning to, because they, you know, you know, you know how they are. You know, the women see something pretty and, the, you know, the, everything just flies out of their head. So if he's being paternalistic, it's his fault. This whole thing is Adam's fault. Adam screwed up the whole thing. Okay. 
So let's hold that for a minute. I swear on him, we're going to get to death. But you have to understand, Adam and Chava, what does it mean to them when God says, because you'll die? What does that mean to beings who have no knowledge of death and no experience of death? What is that supposed to mean to them? So in some ways, you could say God is not exactly being very helpful here, right? It's like, because you will surely die. Well, what the heck does that mean to two new humans who have no idea about life, death, good, bad, consequences? They have no clue. So God is not terribly helpful in this story either. So... You can't eat. All we know is that she knows she's not supposed to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. We can decide if she adds and we can't touch it or if Adam added that for her. So helpfully. In any case, what happens? The setup ends in disaster. If you read it the way we have all been taught to read it. I want you not to necessarily Read it that way. The Nahash says to Chava, you're not going to die when you eat it. God knows, and Judas, to your question, God knows that the minute you eat of that tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. So is it a test? Let's say yes. The question is, what is it a test for? What is it a test of? How have we all been taught this story? We've all been taught this story is that this is a test of obedience. Will they observe the will of God and follow the will of God? And when they don't, there are dire consequences and they die in some sense because now they are mortal. That's garbage, and I'm going to show you why. I will give you a proof text that that interpretation is garbage. It could be a test of which one of these earthlings, if any of them, wants to be like God. What if that's the test? As soon as Chava hears she's going to be more like Elohim, she decides to eat of the source of knowledge. She is seeking two things, to be like Elohim and to have knowledge. And when they eat, they become aware that they are naked and then they cover themselves. So something happens once they learn that naked means something, they cover up their nakedness. What gives them this new understanding of being a room? of being nude, the knowledge between the difference between good and evil. I'm going to let you think about that all night. How does the knowledge of good versus evil change their understanding of what it means to be a room? And why is it now appropriate to cover up that nakedness? That is the topic of a great dissertation, right? What, it's not, it's not, and don't tell me it's sex. I don't think that's it at all. There's nothing here about sex. 
And we can assume if the other animals are going to procreate, they're having sex all the time. So it's not, it's not sex. This is not sexual. Something changes when their eyes are opened and they know the difference between good and bad. They now understand being a room as being something that is only appropriate in certain circumstances, right? It doesn't say, and then they felt ashamed. It said they covered up. So they understand something about the state of being a room and that that is not appropriate anymore all the time now that they know the difference between good and bad. And God says, right? God says the famous, famous word in Hebrew, ayeka. Where are you? Ayeka. And the rabbis want to say God is always doing this. This is not just one day God is walking in the garden and says Ayeka. The rabbis have a beautiful interpretation. They say this is what God does. This is God's job. To walk around all the time going Ayeka, where are you? To human beings. Longing to be in relationship. And we're the ones who are hiding. Right? God created it so that we were all hanging out together. The humans eat then they have a certain kind of knowledge and understanding, and now they hide from God. And God says, Ayeka, and the human responds, I heard et kocha, your, your voice, I heard your voice, and I was afraid because I was naked. It's a different word, ki because I was, it's another form of, uh, of a room of being naked, So I hit. So what if we don't translate fear here as just fear? What if we go back to our original understanding of year ah, which is both awe and fear? It's an awe that leads one to feel vulnerable and tiny. So that's how it's related to fear, right? But what if the human is saying, I heard your voice in the garden and I was in awe. Because now I get it that I'm naked, I'm vulnerable. I now have an understanding that puts me into a different relationship with you, God. It's overwhelming now. Now I understand the vast difference between us maybe, right? I don't know, that I have the capacity to maybe do raw, to do evil, which I didn't know before because I didn't know there was such a thing. We could write many midrashim about what changes for the earthling. What we know is that now the earthling is in a different relationship to the divine. Go back to what I said about ancient Near Eastern stories. The deity creates the Adam and then has intercourse with the Adam. What is the reconstruction of the Israelite story? They, They look to become more like God and in doing so develop an awareness that makes them hide and separate from God. This is not going to be a story about the deities having intercourse with human beings and blah, 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 blah. This is a complete break. Not only are they not going to have sex and then procreate to make other kinds of beings, not only that, there's now a separation between the divine and the human that gets created. And God says, who told you? that you're naked. Like, where did you learn that word? They, they've never been anything other than naked. They, animals don't wear clothes. 
So how, how do you know that word, right? Naked is only in relationship to clothed. There is no clothing. So how do you know this word naked? And God, of course, knows that the only way the human could know this is because they ate from that tree, right? So God says, did you eat of the tree which I had forbidden you to eat from? And what does the ish say? What does the Adam, the earthling, say? Ha'isha, asher natata imadi, he not nali min ha'etz va'ochel. That woman that you gave me, that isha that you gave over here with me, she gave it to me to eat. So God goes to the isha and says, Mazot asit, what is this you have done? And what does she say? Hanachash, the, the serpent, right, tricked me, and I ate. And now comes the famous passage, right, attributed to the Lord God. The Lord God says to the Nachash, because you have done this, because you tricked her into doing this, Arur you are going to be cursed more than all of the other animals, and you will now crawl on your belly and eat dirt all the days of your life. Presumably, that means the Nachash did not slither around on its belly before this. It had legs. And I'm going to put enmity. You wanted to be so close to this woman. You wanted, maybe the Nachash really does want a relationship. Maybe the snake's not doing something wrong. Maybe the snake wants her to eat so that she'll be more like it and God. Maybe the snake just wanted a companion. That would make this sentence make sense, wouldn't it? I will put enmity between you and the woman. Why else would that line be here? Why would, if the Nachash is just Satan and just evil, then what, what is the snake losing here by there being enmity between woman and snake and between woman's offspring and the snake's offspring, Right? There's only, there's only a loss for the Nachash here if what the Nachash wanted was the opposite of this, was closeness and a fondness between it and the woman and between its offspring and her offspring, right? And so now there's going to be, right, they shall strike at your head and you shall strike at their heel, right? You're now going to be enemies. And to the woman, remember, these stories are being written about the world as it is. And women hate to tell you, bring forth children in pain. So how did that happen? Well, here we go. It's the consequence, right? So I will make right, your, your pain you know, hard in, in childbearing. In pain will you bear your children. Your urge shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This is the world as we know it. This is the world as the ancient Israelites knew it. Men had control of their wives. We know this, right? Legally. How did that come to be? Notice that it's not because that's normal. It's not normal. It's a consequence, right, of something else. It's not how we were created. We were created egalitarian, there are consequences that rendered patriarchy the norm. It's not Eden. 
It's not how it was supposed to be. So is it here? Yes, but that's what everybody always focuses on. But that's the world we live in. What I think is important about revaluing and reconstructing our relationship to this text is that it's saying that's not how God wanted it. That's not how we were created. That is not Eden. That's the world. Now you fill in the blank whether that's good or bad. Because you ate, you are descendants of people who ate from that tree, so you know the difference between good and bad. They didn't. To Adam, because you did as your wife said and ate of the tree about which I commanded you, don't eat it. Cursed be the ground because of you. What's his punishment? You're going to have to work for a living. Well, unless you're a yeshiva bucher and your wife supports you, then you get to study Torah all day and not have to worry about it. But in general, men have to work. That's the world we live in. You have to work for a living. It's not easy, right? Unless you're somebody who got handed millions and millions of dollars by your father, let's say, then, you know, then maybe your life's a little easier. But for most of us, and for certainly most people in the ancient world, that's not true. You worked really hard. By the sweat of your brow shall you get, right, nourishment, lechem, until you return to the ground, for from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return, right? We are very attached in Jewish tradition and culture to this, to putting the body back into the ground the same way it was given to us. So we have remained very attached to this idea that we are from the earth and to the earth we will return. And the man for the first time names notice. She gets a name when? After they ate from the tree of the knowledge of the difference between good and evil. She gets named Chava because she was the mother of Kolchai, of everything alive. And what happens now is a beautiful, the rabbis think this is a beautiful line. You may think it's just a tagline. The rabbis see this as a very, very beautiful line. And God made garments of ore, of skin for Adam, right? And his woman. And clothed them. God dresses them. God understands that they now are not going to be okay being a room all the time. God creates garments of ore, of skin. Where do you think the rabbis go with that? Some of you I know have already, I'm sure, heard it. Where do they go? The rabbis say, no, don't read ore. It's not ore skin. It's ore light. God created for them garments of light and dresses them out of a sense of love and caring for the humans. And now we have so many things to talk about. Okay, so how do they even know what death is? They don't. Maybe after the bite of the apple, the mosquitoes came out. Thank you, Richard Rajay, for explaining how we got mosquitoes. Uh, Of course, God knew they ate from the tree. Why does God ask? So to Bert's point, why does God ask, did you eat from the tree? Here is what, here's for me, one of the most important rereadings of this story, the most important. God asks, did you eat of the tree? And what does the Ish say? She, she gave it to me. God goes to her. Did you eat from the, what have you done? And she says, the Nahash tricked me. This is the moment. Say the rabbis, 
that they lose the Garden of Eden. They were not expelled because they ate. They were expelled because they blamed each other. Nobody took responsibility. They ate. No, nothing happens, by the way, when they eat. God just says, Ayeka, where are you? Nothing happens. It's not like, boom, they lose the Garden of Eden and they're kicked out. No. God asks a question. Did you, did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from? And each of them shirks responsibility and blames somebody else. And that is when God says, okay, that just eating of that tree didn't do it. Say some of us who love this story in some ways. Just eating of the tree didn't do it. Knowledge of the difference between good and evil didn't do it. Didn't make them responsible. Didn't make them able to claim who they are and what they do in the world. They're going to need to go out of the garden. They can't do that in the garden. They can't do that here with me. They can't do that where they're safe and completely provided for. They have to go out in the world He's going to have to work and she's going to bring forth children in pain and she's going to have to contend with what marriage means for females. That's what's going to have to happen for them to become responsible, for them to become mature beings ready to own what they make of this world, what they do in this world. And that is why we don't live in the Garden of Eden because just sitting around protected and having nothing expected of you and getting just book learning and knowledge is not life. And it is not what develops responsible, responsive adults. Living does. Experience does. And that is what we're meant to do, is become responsible people. And so... Had they taken responsibility, maybe we wouldn't have needed the world, but that's not what happened. That's what loses them the garden. This is not a test of obedience. It's a test of what happens if they become somewhat like me. Let's see. There's never been human beings before. So let's see. I'll set up a test. She passes the test. Eve passes the test. And eat so she can become like God. And God is now asking, what did that do? Did it work? And the answer is, no. The knowledge was not enough. Kind of theoretical knowledge is not enough to really become like God and to become (coughs) what God wants for humanity to develop into. Instead, they have to go create civilization. They have to create a world. And notice all human beings will descend from these two. No people is better than another. The story we choose to tell is that we all come from Adam and Chava, every person on the planet. And the rabbis say, why? Why why is this the way God did it? God could have done whatever God wanted to. But God did it this way on purpose so that nobody could say, my ultimate ancestor is better than yours. No one can say that because we all descend from the same ancestor. So what do we do with this whole death thing 
I just want to close it out with that. Um, I'm happy to keep talking. Uh, I know we're over time, but this, I just, it's so important to me that we, you know, that we get to this text and really understand it and really like confront it differently. I just want to go to one verse so that you can see why I think it's garbage that it's about mortality here. And God said, now the man has become like one of us. The humans are now more like, right? This God thing, knowing good and evil. What if, pay attention people, what if he should stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever? What does that mean? That means they are already mortal. So don't buy it when someone tells you that that eating from the tree or even saying we didn't take responsibility is what brings death into the world. It's garbage. You just saw the proof. The proof is what if the being, this, this Adam, stretches out his hand and eats from the tree of life and lives forever. We can't have that now. They were created mortal, finite. They would have had to figure out to eat from the tree of life to live forever. Now that option is off the table, but it was an option before. It was not the circumstance. They're created mortal. The vision, of course, (laughs) of most traditions is that there will come a time when we do live forever because that's the fantasy, isn't it? of finite creatures is it will live forever. So for some traditions, it's because you die and go to heaven or hell or whatever. And for the rabbis, it's, you know, the world to come, that God's going to come and God's going to fix everything so that we live forever. But that is not what the creation story teaches about the original humans who were created. They were created mortal. Now, I would love to know the story that we've lost about the tree of life. I would love that story right? Because <laughs> clearly it's in other ancient Near Eastern origin stories. So we know there's a tree of life, there's a tree of knowledge. So we, we have the reconstruction by the early Israelites of that story. I would, what we're missing, what we've lost is the story of the tree of life and human beings' relationship to that, which would be fascinating. So acquiring the knowledge came in the wrong order. Uh, type more about that, Richard. I'm not sure what you mean by that. What what I was trying to get at is you you make you seem to make the point that the reason why they're expelled from the garden is because they didn't take responsibility, and so it's kind of like you you can't you can't develop the knowledge that you need in order to live responsibly unless you live life you live an outside life as opposed to the book learning life. And so it's sort of like, it's kind of like, you know, a hundred years from now, giving a five-year-old a little pill that gets injected into their brain. And all of a sudden they, they have the sum total of all human knowledge and yet they don't know how to live because they're only five years old. Right. Right. So so one of my colleagues, to that point, one of my colleagues uh, wrote a drosh um, on this on this text, uh, and she, uh, Rabbi Rachel Rachel Edelman, and she um, she published an article 
that I read for this class. And, um, and she, she turned to her daughter and she said to her daughter, they were studying for the daughter's bat mitzvah. And she said, so why do you think the Nachash, why, why did Chava believe the Nachash? Why, why did she listen to the Nachash? If it's so arum and so tricky, why did, why did she listen to the Nachash? And the daughter, without any hesitation, answered, well, because she didn't have a mother. Right? And so it's like, <laughs> right? So to Richard, to your point, it's like they had no teachers. So they get this knowledge, but no teacher. And so what good is that knowledge? Not only does it turn out not to be necessarily so great, it turns out it doesn't work just to have right that stuck in there. Like you said, it has to be the outside world. It has to be experience, right, that informs that knowledge. And you're right, because the other way, the other order, and we all know people like this, don't we, who have incredible book learning and incredible book smarts and can't find their way to, you know, the bus stop a block away, like people who are lost in the world. They're completely lost in the world. And they have all of this knowledge. They are super smart, but can't relate to people, right? They can't function, you know, in, in a, in a, as part of a rich, now remember, this is being written by people who lived in rich family systems. They lived in clans. They lived with nuclear families all living in a compound together. Somebody who just has book learning and can't relate to other people was not who you wanted to become in that society, right? You, you were dependent on your relationship to other people. So I think, you know, it's even more so, Richard, yes, in their case, how they lived. We, we can figure it out these days. You can be super smart and not relate very well to people or, or have very much practical knowledge or experience and you can make it okay. But not, I, I have to believe in the ancient world, it would have been much harder, mm-hmm. much, much harder. Um, and so this story comes out of, right, humans' experience of knowledge disconnected from experience. That it can also be dangerous. Think of the nuclear bomb right? Somebody really smart figured out how to split the atom. Really smart. What happens when we have knowledge that is disconnected from experience? And and I'll go further and say, and a care for the world and a care for its creatures. When we just have smarts and the ability to do something, and we don't have an understanding of should we do it? That's the point of being expelled from the garden. If you ask me, that is why it's not the horrible story we think it is. It's coming to describe the world as it is. And the world as it is, if you just have, we can, because we have the capacity to think and do it, you don't have an answer to, but should we? That only comes with experience. That only comes living a life. That only comes after you've birthed your children in immense pain and don't want anything to happen to them that's bad. And so you can imagine you don't want that for anyone else's child either. That doesn't happen if you're blissfully hanging out, right, in in the garden. That's not what we're meant to be. It would have been nice. And of course, that's what we want because we think that's what we want, right? People say, oh, I can't wait to retire. And then they retire and what happens, right? Like it turns out golf 
is not enough for most people in terms of meaning. Recreating is not meaning, it's recreation, which only really has value in relationship to working and doing the dishes and doing the laundry and doing the, taking the dog out, right? Then recreation becomes something super special and amazing. We're not, so we fantasize that we wanted to stay in the garden and not have to work and live forever and not bear children in pain, blah, 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 blah. But it's not really, really, is that really true? Barry. Uh, this uh, chapter was used, uh, I teach junior high, and this chapter was used in the first lesson of the teacher's seminar uh, to teach us about, you know, something about human nature and rules and rule setting. Etc. So even only even if you have just one rule, uh, expect it to be broken. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two: If you want kids to take responsibility for their actions, you don't do what God did. You go there and you say, "I heard that you did X, Y, and Z," and let's now let's talk. You don't go, "Where are you? Who told you you're naked?" Uh, that's what my mother used to do, and she was a teacher, but uh, they told us, if you want children to take responsibility, you just tell them the whole spiel. You don't go asking leading questions. Lovely. That's there's a I book know. called, there's a book called Whenever I Say No, I Feel Guilty, and Didi Carr Rubin, Rabbi Rubin's wife, gives it to all of her confirmation age kids, and it says exactly this. If you really want to teach a child to be a responsible adult, which is what we, we don't raise children, we raise adults. If you want them to be a responsible adult, you don't say to them, why did you do that? I told you a million times not to take that dish down. Why did you take it down? It's, 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 it's nature. We do it. It's instinct and it's wrong. What we need to say is, I told you not to take the dish down. You chose to do it anyway. Now look what's happened. What are we going to do? Like, you know, how, how are we going to fix this? And I don't like it that you disobeyed me. I don't like it that you didn't ask my permission. And I don't like it that you've broken one of my favorite dishes. I'm not happy with your behavior. <laughs> right? So like, that's how you raise responsible adults. So God probably is not looking to raise responsible adults. God is checking, I think, in my interpretation anyway, um, God is checking, Right? How do you know you're naked? Did you eat from that tree? Right? And you know, God's checking. And sure enough, they're not, they're not done yet. Right? They're not, they're not responsible. They no, it's not right. They're gonna have to do some other stuff's gonna have to happen um, before they before they reach that place. And it was making me think about something else. What did you, Barry, what did you say? If you have one rule, even oh, if right, you right, have right. One, one rule. rule. So so someone it's asked earlier, Judith Ubik asked earlier. Oh, hot flash. Um Judith Ubik asked her earlier, sorry, um, Judith asked why, you know, why put a tree there and say, don't eat of it? And Rabbi Kushner, Rabbi Harold Kushner has one of the best explanations of that that I've ever heard. And he says, God had a choice. There's a choice between perfection and goodness. If they, if God wanted perfection, God would not have put the tree there and would not have said, don't eat from it. What God does is set up the situation for them to disobey 
right? And to learn, hopefully to learn, okay, what, what does that look like? What does that mean? And that they can't, they can't serve God, if you want to use that language. They can't do that out of choice until they know there's a choice. God didn't want perfection. That's not what God was interested in, says Rabbi Kushner. God wants human goodness. And that can only happen when we have a choice. And when we know the difference between good and evil, then we can choose to do good. And that's what God was interested in, not in perfection. And the other thing I want to say before I forget is that, remember, everything was tov. Do you remember from creation? God sees it, kitov, kitov, kitov. It's all good. When the human being gets created, it's Tov me'od, it's very good. What is the only thing that is low tov in Eden? In perfection, in the garden of perfection, what is the only thing that's low tov? That Adam should be alone. That Adam was alone. Which I think is the other profound lesson of this story and deep, deeply meaningful to me is that the only thing Everything was perfect. The only thing low tov in the created world was the human being being alone. That for me is a lot of Judaism, right? Is this is not a solo flight. We are in this together. We are meant to be together. And I don't mean just, obviously, I don't mean just heterosexual, like, you know, pairings, obviously. Um, but like, you know, it, we, are not, we are not meant to be alone. That is existentially the only thing God fixes. It's so low tov that God corrects it. God fixes it. That we are meant to do this together. We are meant to be together. We're meant to learn together. We're meant to talk together. We're meant to feel with each other. We're meant to companion each other through this craziness. Even in Eden, we are meant to be together. And for me, that is where Judaism leans hard into that being existentially what has to happen for anything to be tov, for it to be truly good, is that we do it together. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org